Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are taking a look at biblical theology as it relates to ethnicity, nationality, and race. Uh, we're joined by Dr. Steve Bryan, professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and the author of Cultural Identity and the Purposes of God, A Biblical Theology of Ethnicity, Nationality, and Race. It just came out. It's available below. Just follow the link. Dr. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to, happy to be a part of this conversation. All right. So to start with, um, a little background on you, your theological or church traditions orientation, and then a little bit of background on why you wrote the book. Well, we uh, are currently attending Trinity Community Church. It's a non-denomination evangelical church here in northern Illinois, and I teach uh, New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and uh, started there in 2016. But before that, We'd spent uh, most of um, almost a quarter century uh, outside of the U.S., uh, primarily in in Ethiopia, and I was involved in mission leadership and theological education, uh, and and were you know began to to sense that my my students, even though they all seemed Ethiopian to me, they were uh, they were coming from a variety of different ethnic backgrounds, and then you know over the years it it it. Uh, it became more and more obvious to me that this was this was a, a serious issue in the church, serious issue in Ethiopian society. And then when we come uh, returned to the U.S. in 2016, we we quickly realized that many of the same issues were were here. They just were you know, framed in different in different terms, not in ethnic terms, um, but primarily in racial in racial terms. Uh, and so some of the work that we had done in Ethiopia around questions of ethnicity and you know helping to lead seminars and so forth that really uh, provided some some an initial uh, basis for thinking about these these issues and thinking about these issues across scripture. Um, so I don't profess to be an, uh, an expert in uh, ethnicity or race or nationality from either the perspective of political philosophy uh, or from the perspective of sociology. I really come to to the, these topics um, from the perspective of a of a practitioner, cross you know cross cultural practitioner in a mission context, um, but also as a New Testament scholar. And as a scholar from a biblical theological perspective, how are we to think about um, culture, ethnicity, nation states, and race? And if you could identify. Those five terms, culture, ethnicity, nations, states, and race. Well, it's probably important to say that not all of these terms have clear equivalents in, in, in Scripture. Uh, culture is one of those things that I think we see in Scripture. We talk a lot about in Scripture. Uh, we experience it in our own lives, um, but it's notoriously difficult to, to define. Uh, and and some have even suggested that it, you know it's it's so difficult to define that maybe it's it's lost its usefulness. I still think it's 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 useful as a as a concept. And uh, what culture is 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 simply um, our sense of of being a part of a people. And and that's probably that's a very broad definition. But because what creates that sense of belonging to a people. 
uh, a sense of peoplehood is the fact that we have at least broadly shared ways of under, of thinking about life, looking at the world. Um, we are, uh, of course, individuals. Uh, but someone has said that culture doesn't dictate what you do, but it provides the choices within which you 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 make your everyday you know decisions about what your life is going to be like. Um, and so I don't get up in the morning wondering whether I should go and offer a sacrifice to Molech. I just don't. That's not a choice. That's not a viable choice to me. Even if I were inclined to do so, my you know my cultural context does not serve that up as a uh, as a choice. So our 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 culture doesn't dictate our choices, but it, it provides an array of choices within which we choose, and we aren't really aware of uh, of that as we're as we're choosing that, but the fact that we're all working within the same kind of, I don't know, matrix of choices means that we're all looking at life through similar lenses. Uh, and, and as a, uh, as a result, we form a sense of, of identity of what we might call a cultural identity of belonging to a people. Um, and so nationality is of course a sense of, peoplehood that comes from belonging to a nation. Ethnicity is is a sense of peoplehood that comes from belonging to a particular ethnic group. Race, similarly, uh, a sense of groupness that comes from a uh, sense that you belong to a particular racial uh, a racial group. Um, it's so how would you distinguish between nationality and ethnicity? Um, and some contexts, no distinct, no such distinction is is made. And I suppose if we look at scripture, nations are probably very closely equivalent to you know what we think about as as ethnic groups. But there there's some distinctions, but but there are many similarities as uh, as well. Uh, that sense of a shared of a shared history of shared ancestry in particular that's really important for ancestry, and I think it was true. Of uh, of many uh, of many ancient nations as well, they they sensed that they they had all you know sort of descended from the same people, and that persists even after phenomena like intermarriage with other groups. Um, what cultural anthropologist calls exogamy—that is, you marry outside of your own group. When you marry outside of your own group. Uh, of course, that lineage, that ancestry isn't pure any longer, is it? Um, but yet you still continue to sense, you know, that that you're descended, you, that common common ancestry. And so some of those, you know, there's no such thing as a as pure ancestry. That is that, you know, you only have a, a certain ancestor's blood running right. in your veins. You know, it's all all ethnic groups uh, have that kind of mixing that has taken place over generations. But we don't feel that way. Uh, and the groups to which we belong, we sense that we are, particularly in ethnic context, we sense that we we have you know, shared DNA. And to a certain extent, perhaps in, in the case of, of many ethnic groups, that's that's true. But it's not absolutely true. Right. So and, how would you distinguish then between states and nations? I guess the easiest way, and they are sometimes used interchangeably, um, but the easiest way is to think about a state as a government and a nation as a people. 
that exists under that uh, under that government. Okay, sometimes and then people, go so ahead. Sometimes people refer to nation states, you know, so that's that that kind of language gets used. But nation is a term that uh, you know it's it's even contested, and you know, among political philosophers as to exactly what is meant by a, a nation and what what's the meaning of 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 nationhood. And is there anything, any biblical concept anywhere close to what we understand as race? Not really. It's not that there weren't differences in skin color. We do see awareness of of skin color differences, um, but but the concept of race is 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 really much more recent than 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 that. Um, and it's the it's the notion that phenotypical characteristics like like skin color are a reliable, you know, pointer toward groupness. That is, it, it indicates that there are certain commonalities shared, broadly shared across a whole group. Uh, and, you know, this emerged, you know, two or three centuries ago in, you know, what was sometimes referred to as scientific racism. Uh, it really drove many of the atro atrocities of the 20th century in particular, uh, this notion that humanity as a whole can be divided into broad racial groups, um, and then even looking back earlier that than that, where you know people were you know trading in slaves, and you know this idea of of racial groups that can be arranged on a hierarchy of uh, of intelligence, of emotional disposition, uh, you know these kinds of things have. You know, have been the, uh, that idea was the source of untold, untold horrors, and so what we live with in terms of racial groups today is really the legacy of of that. And I think if if we could turn the clock back and get rid of any concept, it would be the concept of concept of race, just because it's 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 so um, implicated in all of these these horrific um, events from. From our past, there are these horrific practices of our past that still shape the way that people think uh, today. So I've sometimes said that if you come to the if you come to America, uh, as soon as you go through passport control, your identity is racialized, no matter where where you come from. Um, so you may be an Ethiopian, for instance, uh, who has never thought of themselves as as black. And if you come to America, you're immediately racialized in that in that way, mm -hmm. uh, even though that has no meaning for you based on your your you know your national Ethiopian background or the specific ethnic background. Um, it, it's not you know it's not just a matter of black and white. I I remember talking to a a student recently who was visiting Trinity, and they had come to the to the U.S. from uh, I think from. Um, Malaysia, Indonesia, and and uh, and I asked them, did did you ever refer to yourself or think of yourself as Asian before you came to America? And he said, no, never. I never even heard of that. <laughs> and so, so, so it's something that was done to him. His identity, as it were, was was racialized when he got here. It, it mm. wasn't something that he. It wasn't a, a category that was that was meaningful to him for all of his years growing up. All right. So we have all those categories, race, 
nationality, etc. But we're also called to be God's people. We're brought to be uh, through faith in Christ to be members of God's people. How are we to see that um, as the foundation for our worldview, etc., as opposed to those other categories? You know, that's really that's a really interesting question. An important, an important question. I think it's one that uh, that Christians have uh, have wrestled with. Uh, let me say a couple of things about what I think is not so helpful. One is that uh, we tend to think of the church, the people of God, as a collection of individuals. Uh, that is, we attend, we go to church because it it meets our individual spiritual needs, uh, or maybe in a in a flatter way, simply because we think you know Scripture tells us if you're a Christian, you're supposed to go you're supposed to go to church, and uh, and so I think it's very natural for us to to think about church as as a projection of or an extension of our individual spirituality. Uh, we may think about you know doing life with other people or, or, or community, but we're really thinking in terms of, uh, our, you know, coming together as, as individuals. Um, I, you know, I think that there's something that is very significant and true and important about that. We come into the church, into the people of God on the basis of individual faith in Christ. Uh, and so, uh, going back all the way to the early chapters of, of Genesis, the idea that we're made in the image of God um, is one of the great contributions of the Judeo-Christian tradition to you know, Western civilization is, is this idea that every individual has dignity, every individual has worth. There are not certain classes of people, aristocracy or kings that are more important than, than others. Everyone is equal in dignity and and value and and worth. That has been, you know, a very very important contribution of the Judeo Christian tradition, and I think uh, the Reformation just reinforced that because the Reformation was insisting on the importance of individual of an individual uh, of an individual's faith in Christ. So that individual response to to God. Uh, has always been kind of a hallmark of uh, of evangelicalism, and so it, it simply, you know, provided a strengthening of that sense of focus on uh, on individuals. So I think that's that's really really important. So something there important and vital for us to hang on to, and yet all through Scripture, you have this consistent, sustained focus on nations, peoples. Uh, it, it starts in, in Genesis, and you see it all the way through the Book of Revelation, where you know every nation, tribe, and tongue is represented around the uh, around the throne of God. So, um, somehow, in, in thinking about what it means to be the people of God, we not only have to think about you know our individual response to God, and you know that that, that brings us into the church, but we also have to think about the church in relationship to that. Uh, the ultimate fulfillment of God's purposes for people. We're not cultural identity is not something that we're going to get over. You know, we're going to get to heaven and we'll all say it, share the same culture. We'll all, you know, speak the same language. That's not the biblical, biblical vision. 
It's not one of, you know, finally we'll be we will be past these these cultural differences and we'll all be the same and we'll all have heaven's culture. That's not a biblical idea, although I think it's a very common idea among uh, among Christians. So I think this idea of being the people of God, ultimately, where we see you know the culmination of Scripture, is that that's not a monolith. Uh, ultimately, to be a part of the people of God is to be a part of a people of peoples, and. However, that peoplehood, the constituent peoples, conceptualize their peopleness, whether in terms of ethnicity or race or whatever terms, clan in some context. You know, there are other other forms of of peoplehood out there. Those are all going to be represented within the one people of God. So, if we think of the people of God uh, from one perspective as both the one and from another perspective, as the many, then and uh, I think that we're we're getting close to 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 the divine purpose, the divine intent for, okay. for humanity. So, what would you say then about God's original intention in creation, in terms of uh, diversity, human diversity, cultural diversity? Um, what does that have to do with the creation mandate? How does that all figure in? Well, that, that expression "creation mandate" has been around for a little while, um, and or the cultural mandate, sometimes uh, it's sometimes called. Um, if you if you read the creation accounts, what you'll see is that God, you know, you know, creates the forms and then fills the forms, and and each of those forms are teeming with diversity. Um, but when He creates humanity, that you know. They don't immediately fill the heavens, you know, the earth as the birds of the air fill the fill the heavens or the fish of the sea fill the fill the oceans. Um, instead, they're commanded fill the earth, and and I think that we have this 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 idea that that means populate the earth. But both as you look at what has happened in the earlier part of creation, and as you look at what happens then in the ensuing chapters. It becomes very clear that this, it doesn't mean simply populate the earth with people, but populate the earth with peoples. Um, that is, fill the earth with peoples and uh, culturally distinct. I think also linguistically distinct, distinct peoples that um, will will get about the business of creating cultures. And so, you know, almost immediately after, uh, you know the the fall narrative then you you begin to you begin to get all this genealogical material in in Genesis 4 and 5 you know the this idea that uh, and it's in that genealogical material that you know this family went and settled in this place and they began to work with metal this family began to you know create musical instruments all this kind of indications that hum, human beings were not only beginning to distinguish themselves become distinct from one another human families being distinct from another human family but that they were also beginning to be known for certain things uh they uh, they were they developed a certain way of life it wasn't wasn't that every member of that family played a musical instrument uh, or every member of that that particular group you know worked with metal 
but that was what they became known for, you know. When I think of people who wear kilts today, I think of the Scottish, you know. <laughs> it's what they're known. It's kind of what they're known for. It's kind of what, from an outsider's perspective, at least, what distinguishes them culturally from uh, from other groups. So these in the early indications, it's rudimentary, of course, but um, these rudimentary indications that that very quickly there begins to be differentiation, di distinction, distinguishing between uh, not just individuals, but between families and then peoples as those, you know, as the generations pass. But then in chapter three, you write about cultural identity in rebellion. Yes. Uh, you're talking about the sons of Cain and Babel and the, the post-flood stories. So how does that tie in? How do we make sense of that? Yeah. So one, you know, there's a lot of very linguistic, interesting things that are happening as you work through the Hebrew text of those early chapters of Genesis. They're told to fill, fill the earth with peoples, and instead what they do is they fill it with violence. Uh, I take that as a kind of human, a form of human rebellion against divine purpose for diverse people. How do people respond to difference? Violence. That's what that's what happens, and and the flood is God's judgment on that that particular form of 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 human rebellion. Um, so it is really a you know it is expressed in terms of resistance to that to the divine purpose. Fill the earth with peoples, culture, distinct cultures, and instead they fill it with violence. Um, so they're differentiating, but they're killing each other. Uh, and and the Lord's judgment on, on this is you know is is absolute. So you have you have the flood na narratives. What happens in the post flood narratives is also interesting um, because you have a kind of almost a, framed as a kind of human response to violence. Like here's our solution to the problem. Uh, we're not going to be different. And that's really what I think the Babel story is all about. I've argued also, you know, that the, you know, that the story of of one of Noah's sons going in and exposing, you know, to an exposed Noah, very graphic, very ugly story in the immediate aftermath of the of the flood. Um, I think that story makes best sense understood as a story of of incest. It's it's not a story about differentiation you know the renewal of the cultural mandate after the flood still that mandate's still there but one of noah's sons you know goes in and i think uncovering nakedness is a is a idiom in the pentateuch for um uncovering the you know the what belongs to the husband um um so that i think that 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 idiom um, suggest that there's something incestuous sure. going on. There's there's right. a, there's this impulse to sameness. It's you know I'm not going to go to the mat over that particular uh, over the interpretation of that particular story. But what's hinted at in that story then becomes obvious in the in the Babel narrative. In the Babel narrative, of course, you know there's, it's very explicit. We will not spread out, <laughs> fill the earth. We won't. We will make, you know, one name for ourselves. We will exist in one place. We will, you know, we will occupy, you know, we will uh, speak one language. 
And the tower that's built up into the heavens is, is kind of a symbol of their desire to be united. But they are united in defiance of God. You know, God says, fill the earth. They'll say, they say very explicitly, we won't. We will stay mm. together. We will be culturally the same. It's a conception of unity as uniformity. It's and it's it's totalizing, right? Uh, and you know, in terms of the you know contemporary sentiments, it's the same sentiment that feeds nationalism today. We need to be one culture. Um, and so you can, you know, charitably read that's a response to kind of the prob the pre flood problem of violence across lines of difference. Um, I think, um, and it's and it's the human solution to it. We just won't be different. We'll all be the same. That will cure the problem of uh, of violence. Of course, that itself is you know can be can be questioned, but um, but that's not God's purpose. God's purpose is for the earth to be filled with diverse peoples, and so that's 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 what God then undertakes to do. He scatters them, and He confuses their languages, so you get linguistic diversity. And I think there's an allusion to this in, in Acts 17, where, where Paul says, you know, as he's speaking before the Areopagus, he he says that that God has put people and you know in all the places at various times, he's put people where he had you know ordained for them to uh to live, all the peoples, all the families of, of the earth, exactly where God put them. So Genesis 10, Table of Nations, um that's that's a picture of, you know, of the earth filled with peoples, at least in its in a symbolic or preliminary way. And then this ensuing narrative in, in Genesis chapter 11, the Babel narrative, tells us how that happened. So chronologically reversed. Uh, and I think there's, you know, most of the commentaries are, are agreed on that. Um, but but nevertheless, we, you know, God God it fulfills his purpose for an earth filled with diverse people, peoples, but but he does so in such a way as to overcome human resistance. Uh, so it's human resistance to and defiance against God's purpose for there to be you know a diversity of families, a diversity of peoples, a diversity of cultures filling the earth uh, that I think you know the, the the story of Babel really really narrates. But then Abraham comes on the scene and God makes a covenant with him. You talk about uh, power and blessing, but you also talk about the necessity of uh, particularity. So uh, what's going on here? You know, I think God, I, I'm quite confident God values the unity between peoples. Uh, and... And so we have to we have to think about how is God going to to accomplish uh, accomplish this, and so this scattering this this you know this fragmentation of the human family that takes place at at, at Babel's at Babel fulfills the divine purpose for a world filled with peoples, but how then will uh, will God fulfill His purpose for the diverse peoples of the of the earth to be united? as a community of blessing in worship of God. How, how is God going to, to do that? That's what the Abrahamic covenant is about. Um, so I think we, it's important for us not to lose sight of 
that 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 what is being promised to Abraham. Two things really. One is a has a national focus, and one has a what we call an international focus. So Genesis 12, the initial statement of the covenant, contains elements of both. Genesis 15 focuses on the national covenant. Genesis 17 reiterates the covenant, but now with a focus on the on the international dimension of it. So, you know, from a just from the purely from the perspective of the interpretation of Genesis, it's it's an important phenomenon, but it's also foundational for how we understand you know why so much of the old testament is concerned with with nations and with one nation in particular the nation descended from abraham and then why that's picked up in important ways you know in virtually every book of the new testament uh and the claim that that has now been brought to at least preliminary fulfillment in in the coming of christ so the promise to abraham is a promise to make from him a great nation and that great nation is numerically great but but also understood in terms of of a particular kind of people a people to whom blessing has been restored and if we ask what blessing is blessing uh is that that, that thing that god adds that that power that capacity that enablement that god adds that enables something to do what it's meant to do. That's what blessing is in Genesis. And so the restoration of a blessing to a nation is enabling a people to be what a people is meant to be. So it's not this generic, vague thing, you know, you know, you're going to have lots of figs or something like something like that. It's properly functioning uh, peoplehood. Once that has been accomplished, then it becomes possible for all the families of the earth to 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 have blessing restored to them. So the particularity is important because this is God's way of of restoring a unified unity to humanity. You might say, I think, in in you know, in broader biblical theological perspective, this is how God accomplishes a people that whose life mirrors his own life his own triune life uh, that's part of unfolding revelation it's not all sort of laid out for us there in genesis chapter chapter 12 15 and 17 but it's there in noose that is it's 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 introduced there and in a nutshell we we begin to see what is developed through the the remainder of the of the story of scripture so what happens after that is you know the sustained focus on God's dealings with with Israel, but here and there through the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, you get indications that uh, that this is a via media, that this is a means to an end, that that God's dealings with Israel is serving a wider purpose for the whole of of humanity. That ultimately, when God fully accomplishes His purpose for Israel. This then will set the stage for his fulfillment of the of his promises, uh, promises set, be the means by which he fulfills his promises for all peoples. So part of that then is the conquest of Canaan. 
So this is uh, Israel's relationship with those surrounding nations, the people they've conquered. Uh, what is significant here? And then specifically, how do you answer your own question, what are nations for? Yeah. Well, um, I think I think the the conquest narratives are, you know, from a ethical, moral point of view, some of the most difficult to deal to deal with. Uh, but I, uh, but it certainly was, you know, my eyes were open to some things by com- approaching these texts with uh, with particular these particular questions in in mind. You know, God, uh, there's there's cultural factors involved in terms of how how this is uh how these narratives narratives work but ultimately what's being you know, being restored to israel's properly functioning nationhood what how do we think about nationality in ancient terms and and the answer has to do with you know three three things one is um rule or kingship uh one is land that certainly, you know, kind of central to the Abrahamic promise. Kingship is as well in, in, uh, in Genesis 15, 17. Um, but, uh, but also the relationship between a people and their God. Uh, so the, those are the three, as we might think of, constituent elements of nationality in the, in the ancient, ancient world. Those three things needed to be in place. You know, it's probably too simple to make kind of in- linguistic equivalence but um a nation is uh, a people with land <laughs> might, might might put it in, in in those terms you can conceptualize a people you know a wandering people for instance or a dispossessed people uh as as having an identity but even though the borders aren't fixed as they are in you know modern nation states still there you know there's a, a land associated with with the people these are the these are the things that are really in focus in the conquest narratives uh, and so it's not any nation you meet just you know completely destroy um it's the specific nations that are in the land that is being made holy to the lord so that he can create for himself a holy people in that uh in that land um but the interesting thing is that these nations that are completely destroyed, there are people who continue to bear the names of those people. You think about, you know, whether it's Rahab or Uriah the Hittite, you know, these these are, you know, Canaanite peoples um, or Canaanite, you know, by identity. Uh, and yet, as a uh, as as an identity outside of Israel, devoted to the worship of other gods. What God commands is that those identities, those idolatrous identities, have no place in the midst of Israel, in the midst of this land. So the ideology is, I think, really, really fascinating. It's really, really important. Uh, Israel is to be a holy people, a people set apart to the Lord. And only as such can they be a people who can... You know, if we if we pose the question this way: Can one people hold many peoples inside of itself? And and the answer to that question is: If it is to be a holy people, 
they cannot hold idolatrous peoples inside of themselves. Israel itself has to be holy, but in order for Israel to be holy, they can't have you know this, these idolatrous identities in their midst. And so, in those conquest narratives, there's this there's this repeated emphasis on the destruction of kingship and on the destruction of sanctuaries, idolatrous sanctuaries. Mm-hmm. Though you know that's really the focus of, some, of many of these conquest conquest narratives. What's being eliminated? What's being destroyed? Is national identity even though in some sense the cultural connection to the past remains um, for for individuals but they're individuals who have now become part of israel even though they have retained their you know, the cultural identity of, of of these peoples who once lived in the uh, once lived in the land so important narratives uh but i think they're important to understand because this language of complete destruction, the harem language, it gets picked up in the book of Revelation and it gets picked up and applied to every nation. And I think the message of that mm. is that every nation exists in an idolatrous form. Every nation. And those, in, its, in their idolatrous forms, every nation will have to die. Every nation will perish. Every nation will be completely judged by God. That's central to the book of Revelation. Okay, and we'll get into that in more detail later. So moving forward to the time of Jesus, we have in the book of Matthew, uh, you write about privilege and hospitality in the Gospel of Matthew and how that relates to the themes we're dealing with. So uh, what do you find significant there? Yeah, the book of Matthew is very uh, is very interesting and important uh, for you know for our thinking about these these themes and um, you know the concept of privilege gets used a lot. I don't think it's very well understood. Um, you know, in in our as a political concept, privilege doesn't really apply to is not a word that is properly used of individuals. It's a word that applies to groups. So any individual might not might, might not be properly described as particularly privileged, uh, but they're part of a group that that is. And and so we can distinguish between kind of types of uh, of privilege. And you know this this is this is there in kind of the, the sociological literature. Um, one type of privilege is a privilege, uh, that you have kind of illegitimately. Uh, that is, if one particular group experiences privilege, let's say, let's say you have a group of, uh, you know, factory employees, for instance, and they come from two different ethnic groups, and and over time, uh, you know, eighty percent of those who are promoted into positions of man, you know, senior management and leadership in that in that company, uh, come from just one of those ethnic groups. You're going to want to ask the question, "What's going on here?" And the and the answer is, well, some some dynamic of privilege, illegitimate privilege, is being is you know is is shaping things here, and so you're you're going to you know you're going to need to address that if you're going to you know if, if there's going to be 
equality and fairness in that in that workplace. Um, so that's one one type of one type of privilege, but um, it's not the only type of, uh, of privilege. Let's say we think about uh, something like um, a good education, and you're in a situation where certain a certain group of people have access to quality education, um, and another group has uh, much less access to quality education. Now, what's the solution there? The solution is not the same as the for the first kind of privilege. In that case, you need to sort of remove the privilege from the you know from the, the group that's experiencing it unfairly. Um, the solution is to open up the privilege to 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 everyone. So those are some basic concepts around the the political concept of privilege, and and I thought that was. Uh, you know, a, a helpful conversation to bring alongside of what's happening in uh, in Matthew, because there the the concept of privilege is really uh, is really front and center. You see it, for instance, in the story of Jesus' encounter with the with this Gentile centurion, um, and you know the centurion comes and he's wanting Jesus to do something for his servant, and uh, and. And Jesus, uh, you know, says, well, you know, he was going to appears to be going to his house with him. And he says, no, you don't need to come to my house. You know, I'm a man under uh, and under authority. And uh, and so when I tell someone to do something that carries Caesar's authority and they do it. And and so you don't need to come. All you need to do is speak the word. And and Jesus says, I've not seen such faith in all of Israel. Uh, and and then he says, and he says, many will come from east and west and sit down at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. They'll be mm. they'll be excluded. So a very interesting, a very interesting statement. You know, it's talking about to whom does this privilege belong? Well, it belongs to you know, sons of the kingdom is kind of the language of the language of privilege. But to be an individual member of a privileged group doesn't necessarily mean that you as an individual are going to share in that privilege. That seems to be what Jesus is is saying. Whereas those who are not part of the privileged group, they can be welcomed into that privilege. So uh, there's a a couple of things that are going on that are, that are, that are fascinating about that. And it, it really becomes a story about the opening up of Israel's privilege to, to, to non-Israelites. Something very, very similar is going on in, in Matthew 15 with one of the most difficult stories in the uh, in the gospel. It's Jesus' encounter with this woman in Matthew's gospel. In contrast to Mark's gospel, she's referred to as a Canaanite woman. Right, right. Loaded language, of course. You know, going back to the conquest conquest narratives, and Jesus seems to lean into that kind of you know Canaanite identities. You know, you know. Why you know you're you're claiming Israel's you know and asking for healing for her demon possessed daughter? She's she's claiming you know bread that belongs to the children of Israel, and she has this extraordinary statement. She says, "It's it I it's true. It's Israel's bread, but there's so much of it. It's falling off the tables. There's so much of it. There's enough for for everyone." In other words. 
yes, this is Israel. That's you know, Israel is 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 privileged in that in that respect. And yet there's an opening up of that privilege to uh even to a woman whose whose cultural identity is tagged as 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 Canaanite, one of these excluded people. So um So that's the hospitality. That's the hospitality where and the language of bread there, you know, that that you know, the risk of using a bad pun, that narrative about Israel's bread is sandwiched between the Israelite feeding in chapter 14 and the Canaanite, you know, the feeding of the Gentiles of the 4,000 in the, in the, in the following narrative. And so it's a story about, you know, you know, the feeding of the 5,000, 12 baskets of leftovers, more than enough for Israel. And that then becomes important in, in the, in the story of Jesus' encounter with Israel, she says she recognizes what has just been represented in the feeding of the five thousand. She intuits it. That is more than enough bread for uh, for Israel. The you know the the God's bounty, His blessing being poured out on Israel, so abundant. There's enough for 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 us as well. So, and then you have the feeding of the the four thousand, the Gentile feeding that kind of, you know, demonstrates that that's you know in, in a in a different way. But but this is what's this is what's going on. And that is, who's being invited to Israel's table? So sit down at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then bread falling from the table. All the, you know, this table imagery is an imagery of hospitality. It comes up in a, a lot of other ways. Jesus' practice of table fellowship with the, those who appear to be excluded from Israel because of their way of life or, or for whatever reason, um, they're being invited to the to the table. Jesus is, you know, including them around the table, representing their inclusion uh, at the invitation of God uh, as as part of God's action to accomplish His purpose. And then in chapter 7, you talk about Israel being restored in Jesus as a holy nation. And you characterize it as incorporation without assimilation. So what do you mean by all that? Assimilation is one of those very potent concepts uh, in, contemporary, in contemporary discussion. Um, probably, you know, most represented in in the United States with the language of the melting pot. That is culturally distinct peoples are, you know, are welcomed into America, but once they get here, they, you know, they kind of have to give up the cultural identity that they bring with us and assimilate to the identity. And somehow maybe there's a little bit of influence from that they bring, that they bring with them, but they all kind of meld together. They assimilate into this new, new whole so they give up their their own culture in order to take uh you know take on american national culture so behind that idea is is this this notion that you know every country uh or nation has just one culture and so if you're if you're a cultural outsider and you're going to be you know you're going to be a part of america you have to assimilate to it so that's what assimilation uh, assimilation is. What we see happening, particularly in, in you know in the New Testament, but in Luke Acts in particular, is where I kind of explore some of these some of these ideas. You see that kind of 
incorporation taking place, incorporation into Israel, uh, but without kind of the forfeiture of the cultural identity that they came with. You know, the, those who are coming into um, into this restored Israel, this restored people, they get to maintain their cultural identities. That probably comes to the clearest uh, expression in the Jerusalem Council uh, decision of chapter of uh, of Acts fifteen, um, but Luke's exploring this in in a, in a variety of ways. What? How does the you know when does the language of you know Christian the the term Christian comes into existence as an outsider term, almost a slur um, to name something something new, something that the Romans hadn't seen before, and that is multi-ethnic assemblies now we've seen gen, you know pagans gathering for pagan worship we've seen jews gathering in the synagogue for synagogue worship and you know the odd gentile comes along god fear or whatever um but what we haven't seen is these these clear multi-ethnic communities where you know for a god fear to become fully integrated fully incorporated into the synagogue they had to be circumcised they had to become jewish uh and now what begins to happen is these communities of people publicly obvious to you know to to the onlooking world uh and they're multi-ethnic and and they need they need a new name they need a new word for it they haven't seen it before and the word they come up with is christian um and you know this is this is an important point of uh cavin rose book world upside down certainly a book worth, a uh, book worth reading. But he's exploring this this multi ethnic phenomena that's that distinguishes these Christ followers at, at the at the early early stages. It's it's a multi ethnic people from uh, from the beginning. So incorporation, they are all you know you, you know the language of James and in in, the, in Acts fifteen the you know the rebuilding of the fallen tent of David, and now. <laughs> And now people's, you know, the, the 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 Gentiles on whom God has placed His name—that's the language of Amos nine. Um, they are being, you know, invited into this this now restored tent uh, that has fallen and now has been has been restored. So incorporation, but no assimilation. Okay, and you talk more about cultural destruction and cultural re- renewal. And talk about how that's relevant to the gospel. What's noteworthy there? Um, you know, I think one way of understanding the gospel. We wrestled with this when when we were we were in Ethiopia and and we were thinking about the contextualization of the gospel in cultures to which we didn't didn't belong uh, and one way of thinking about that is you know you want to make the the gospel readily understandable um and you know so that it is kind of at home in you know new cultures as the gospel comes into those cultures for the uh for the first time and one way of thinking about it is how can the gospel enter into these cultures with, with you know, and still create the least amount of disturbance? Uh, and that's not what we see happening in 
in, in the book of Acts. It is it is disruptive. You know, Calvin Rowe calls this book World Upside Down, which is a quote from the book of Acts. You know, you know these people are going everywhere with this message and turning the world upside down. This is this is disruptive. And one of the reasons why it's culturally disruptive is that, you know, um, there, as the gospel comes into pagan cultures, it does what, you know, it is confrontational in, in a certain sense. There's certain basic incompatibilities. And if you think of every culture having idolatry within it, um, then what you see happening in Acts is this call to turn away from idolatry. That's mm. that is is large scale cultural destruction. So in Ephesus, for instance, uh, you have this turning to to faith in Christ, and the immediate kind of spontaneous response is is to is to burn all the magic books. You know the. This is like Taliban stuff, you know, you know, destroying these ancient, you know, vestiges of, of Buddhism in Afghanistan years, you know, several years ago. It's not that's not what's going on. But it's the it's the recognition of the fundamental incompatibility of of a pagan way of life and and the idolatrous entailments of that um, with the gospel. And so. You know, pagan culture, that to the extent that it has been implicated in idolatry, it has to be destroyed. And yet, at the same time, Luke goes out of his way to uh, to highlight the fact that uh, that there are elements within culture. You know, these even within these pagan cultures, there's there's things that are brought in when brought into a Christian frame. When these cultures come, you know, cultural identities become uh, integrated or incorporated within this, this peop the people of God, something extraordinary happens. And that is those cultural values that they had in some form, uh, even as pagans, uh, those are not only reaffirmed, but they are given new energy. They're given new you know, placed within a, a, a framework that is kind of profoundly coherent. Uh, so things like, you know, friendship, the honor uh, of, and hospitality, the honor uh, that you show to guests, um, all that, you know, in certain episodes, the Maltese episode at the end of chapter, at the end of, of Acts, um, very, very important dimension of that. I think you've interviewed my colleague, Josh Jipp. He's written an important article right. on, on that on that as well. All right. And then we move to the Gospel of John and where you have Jews, Samaritans, and Greeks that are included. Uh, what's happening here? Ooh. John is a, is a... John's Gospel is a... Is a, is a hot one, uh, particularly on the identity of, of Jews. Um, it's important to say that the Jews in uh, in John's gospel, I don't think that that expression is used to characterize all Jews. Jesus is a Jew, uh, but um, it seems to be designating a particular group. And, it's, and so there is... It, Jewish identity itself is being contested. 
And so John writes as someone who's trying to lay claim or to construct Jewish identity in a particular way. And, and he has in mind a particular, you know, uh, you know, Jews who construct it in a very different way, uh, who make, you know, descent, you know, bloodline from, from right. Abraham, uh, a kind of key, you know, uh, an indispensable element to their, to their Jewishness. So this, this kind of ethno-nationalist assumption about what it means to be the people of God. Uh, and that I think is, you know, he uses this term in Greek, the Iudawi, that uh, to specify that way of constructing Jewish identity. He holds on to the ethnonym, the the ethnic name, um, precisely to, to point out the fact that um, that this is how this particular group of uh, of Jews is is constructing their their identity. They're relying, in some sense, on uh, on their ethnic identity as the basis for a claim of status with God or 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 before God. Um, so Wally Serfosi is an, is someone who's written about some of these some of these things recently. His works was is important. Uh, here, but it's it's an intra-Jewish discussion, and that shapes the way that we think about what's going on. John, you know, he's anti-Jewish, yes, but not Jew- Jewish as a as a way of talking about every single person who identifies as a Jew, but rather as a way of talking about a particular group of Jews in a particular way of identifying. Uh, Jewishness as tied to blood. And so there's all kinds of fascinating, you know, ethnic language that's being, especially in chapter seven and eight of John's gospel, that's, that's being contested. Uh, and, and John's going one way with it. And, uh, and this group that is referred to as the Jews, they're going a different way. So the ethnonym is important, even though it's been badly misused and uh and you know whether in nazi germany or in charlottesville you know sir Fosey kind of be- begins his work by pointing out the fact that john 8 is a specific reference that uh has been picked up by anti-semitic groups uh but it's a complete misunderstanding of what john uh, of what john is doing you know it's a complete misreading of what what john is is about so sometimes john is 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 kind of held responsible for for the readings of his worst readers, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I think it's important for us to read John more charitably and read him with and kind of the realities of first century Judaism and the extent to which Jewish identity is being is being contested. Um, so, how is that what's well, being contested from John's perspective? is obviously you know faith in Christ the significance of that for uh for understanding the fulfillment of God's purposes for for Israel um as he says to the Samaritan woman salvation comes from the Jews uh, so he doesn't just use it as in a negative term he's using he uses that term more broadly how then do we understand that and um and so John 4 is really important for understanding one way uh, in which this this people is to be understood, and that is 
as as a people through whom salvation has come to the world. So we believe and we know the Samaritans, the you know, Samaritan villagers say at the end of chapter four that uh, we've seen for ourselves that that you are you know, the son, the son of God, the savior of the world. Um, and then, you know, the kind of the climactic moment at the, you know, it brings the first half of the narrative to, to an end, you know, these Greeks come and they find some of Jesus' disciples and they say, we want to talk to Jesus. And the narrative never tells us that whether Jesus met with them, talked to them. He seems to change the subject altogether. Seems to change the subject. So Jesus says something really interesting. Now my hour is, now the hour has come. That is, that becomes the signal. These Greeks coming to Jerusalem, wanting to come to to see to see Jesus that becomes the signal for uh, for Jesus to say now the hour has come and of course in John the mm-hmm. hour is the hour of his his crucifixion and, re- and resurrection um it is at this hour that he is lifted up uh, his glory the you know the glory of God uh the glory that he had before all time uh, with the in the presence of the Father, that that will be displayed for all the world to see, and so it, it's this fascinating moment in which you know the fulfillment of the, you know, what the prophets had said that the nations will come in pilgrimage to uh, to to Israel, and come in particular in pilgrimage to Israel's temple to see the glory of the Lord, the the revelation. The culmination of all things, um, of God's uh, of God's purpose, and that's what the crucifixion and the resurrection is is all about. It's it's the moment then when, if we're in John's terms, Jesus is raised up as the as the temple that is capable of uh, being a host for all peoples. All peoples are now able to to come into uh this 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 new temple in which god's people enjoy the presence presence of god jesus says destroy this temple and i will raise it up in three days of course referring to his 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 resurrection um and then that that motif of the temple then just gets carried through right right through john so in paul as author of romans i'm assuming you see romans more as just a, a book about how individuals are justified through Christ. So what are your thoughts on Romans, how it relates to these topics? Yeah, Romans is, Romans is fascinating in part because, you know, people still debate, you know, the purpose of Romans. Probably we should speak about the purposes uh, of Romans. But there is a kind of presenting problem as there, as there is for many of Paul's letters. And the problem is, you know, ethnic division ethnic conflict in the church at rome uh and and i suppose if i you know i talk you know in the initial part of that chapter you know missionaries can be a very pragmatic kind of group of people and so kind of immediately looking for solutions let's you know how can we patch this thing up and and instead what paul does is he goes you know he he gives us this 11 chapter exposition of the purposes of God in the gospel. The what is the you know the power of God revealed in the gospel? What what is that all about? Um, and 
And what he says is, you know, the gospel itself is the declaration of God that all people have fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or you're Gentile, um, what your ethnic or cultural background happens to be, all humanity is united in its rebellion against God. Uh, and and so what is the what is the fix to that? Uh, and the fix to that is God has presented, in, at the end of chapter 3, God has presented his son as a propiti propitiatory sacrifice, sacrifice on the basis of which we, you know, we are justified. Not just the Jew, but the Gentile as well. So that Jew and Gentile then comes, that language comes into play there at the end of, uh, in, in, at the end of chapter 3. Uh, and so justification, which is, you know, what Luther rightly saw as a crucial emphasis, um, uh, the justification of individual sinners um, on the basis of their, you know, by means of their faith, uh, absolutely crucial. But it serves a another end. That is to say, we're all shut up under sin. We are all equal in our rebellion against God. And and in Christ, he has raised up, he is forming for himself a, a new humanity, which then becomes the, the focus in, in chapter 6 and, and, and succeeding, succeeding chapters, that is, of justified people. Um, and so when he comes then to the so what of that, uh, as he does it, beginning in chapter, in chapter 12, he's framing that in part as, you know, how, how are we to live in community that, from, with people who are different than, than we are? Some people, you know, consider every day alike. Other people set aside certain days. You know, some people think, you know, certain things are suitable to, to eat. And Paul's, Paul's answer is, is puzzling in one, at one level because he, he does seem to think that, you know, the better argument is it lies on the side of the, you know, of these Gentiles who, you know, who are happy to eat any kind of food, whether it's been sacrificed to idols or not, who are happy to, you know, to drink wine and, you know, whatever, wherever it had been sourced. Um, so it, 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 he understands the, you know, and sympathizes with the argument that's being made, but he almost delights in the fact that they disagree. <laughs> that is... He, he he's happy for this kind of cultural conflict to take place and these these cult, culturally very different ways of expressing devotion to God precisely because he thinks that this is an important way of representing the the unity of all peoples what the action of God in fulfillment of his promise to Abraham to form one family made up of all the families of the earth to mm. form of people of peoples so really really important stuff uh but the so what that he gets to he doesn't that's the maybe the presenting problem it's not where he starts he starts with the gospel and i think that's what we have to do as well in our thinking about you know cultural the, the differences between races and ethnic groups and nations and so forth and the book of revelation sums it all up um there's a fair amount there about ethnicity and nationality. Um, but he also talks about Babylon and the New Jerusalem. So uh, what are your thoughts on this book? 
Revelation is, I think, kind of brings everything, you know, the the canonical story to a, to its proper culmination in terms of its its look back to the early movements of of scripture and uh, and and how it it kind of gathers up these um, these developing streams of ideas and kind of brings them all all, all together in a in a in a very coherent way and. And again, this notion of a people of peoples becomes really, really important. They, we see it in, in a way that mirrors, you know, Christ's own identity. You know, that well-known feature of chapters four and five, you know, the lion and the lamb. Uh, you know, is he a conquering lion or is he a conquered lamb? And the answer is he's both. He's both a conquering lion and a conquered lamb. And he is the conquering lion by being a conquered lamb. So that, I think, is pretty, it, it will be familiar to, to many people. Um, perhaps what's less clear is that that imagery is mirrored in chapter 7 with the way that he represents the people of God. He represents them as, as one people, a conquering army. You know, the this vision of the 144,000. You know Israel in a raid for for battle, uh, so that's one image of the people of God. And then, just as in chapter four, um, uh, he, you know, he, you know, expects to to look up and see the lion. Instead, he sees the lamb. Again, he looks, and what he sees is a multitude made up of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue uh, who have made their you know, garments white, uh, you know, these are those who have, you know, followed the crucified, crucified uh, garment, uh, crucified Messiah, and, uh, and have been washed. Uh, so it's a multi-ethnic uh, multitude. And the unmistakable message is that this conquered people is the conquering people just as the conquer you know the conquered lamb is the conquering lion um so it's important for us to see the way in which john is is really very in a very fascinating way portraying the people of god as both one and many it's a way not only of of talking about continuity with uh with israel but also israel reaching its its restored form its eschatological form it's you know, it's the form that it properly takes in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant as a people of peoples. It's one people. It's also many peoples. Um, so I think that's that's really, really important. Um, Babylon, of course, is the foil for all, you know, this this portrait of the people of uh, people of God. I think one thing that's that's maybe important for our own thinking is about is the fact that the nearest equivalent to Babylon in our world are states now if you think about babylon as a as a cipher for the roman empire it's a pair it's presented in the book of revelation as a parody of the people of god and part of that parody is to say you know look we have you know under roman imperial authority we have subsumed many many peoples uh, you know, and the kings of the earth have have all come in under, you know, the the overarching rule, uh, and it's good for everyone. 
Uh, and so there's this propaganda, as it were, of uh, uh, that's put out by Babylon, portraying themselves as kind of the this you know as a people of peoples. But as you as you peel back the layers, what you what you see is that that this people of peoples has been formed through conquest, through oppression, through violence. Uh, they have grown rich by, you know, the trade of uh, trade in slaves. It's exploitive. It's unjust. Uh, kind of the you know clearest way to put it is the, the kingdom of God is not empire. <laughs> you know that's that's you know the, the, those two things are completely different. And the people of God, as a people of peoples, it bears a kind of resemblance. But Babylon is a is is a is a is a false thing. It's a parody. It's a poor imitation of the real deal. So, what's interesting in the Book of Revelation is that that all nations are part of the people of God. All nations are part are 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 brought under the judgment of God. So, and here's where you get the recent, you know, the recurrence of you know the allusion back to some of these Old Testament karam passages. Every nation will be utterly destroyed in their idolatrous forms. Okay. In the crucified Messiah, every nation must die and rise again. And that that's ultimately, you know, this, this hope lies beyond human history. Um, but it is a hope that in its ultimate fulfillment, God will, con the configuration of humanity will be as a people of peoples. That is what God has accomplished with respect to nations um, in the crucifixion and resurrection. And he has done that by, you know, uh, accomplishing his, his purposes for individuals. All right. That's, yeah, that's quite uh, some dramatic stuff in there in Revelation. Yeah. Um, so finally, then, we have a current situation, ongoing culture wars that— um, are dangerous and could get a lot worse. Uh, what are your thoughts on, based on your research, your, your biblical study on how to best interpret and approach the current situation? One option that's not available for Christians in any cultural context is nationalism. And it's important for us to be clear about what nationalism is. There's a lot of talk, at least in our context, in the last you know, really quite recently about Christian nationalism. It's even been in the news this week. Um, and a lot of people have, have voiced, you know, from outside of that movement have voiced concern and, and, a, and a growing number of people, especially on the political right, have expressed sympathy toward that, that expression. Uh, and there is a kind of superficial attractiveness to it. It's the, it's the notion, you know, you see it in some of the rhetoric of, of uh, Vladimir Putin, or in Russia, or you know, Viktor Orban in Hungary, it's the, it's the notion that you know our our cultures have this Christian you know kind of past, and that and the and Christian values have made us what we are, and those things have to be you know held on to, and the and the political left is is trying to destroy those things, and so we've got to you know fight back, we've got to push put push back uh, and recover our our nation recover our you know our culture and the Christian values that informed our our culture um, 
national so uh, that is to is to bring christianity into you know kind of a nationalist way of thinking about what what a country should be or what a nation should be um it's the idea that every a very modern idea in one sense but you know informed by a very ancient sentiment which is that every nation should have its own every culture every culturally distinct people should have its own state so mm. you know over the last couple of years you know ethiopia for for instance a country very dear to my heart has been sort of torn to pieces by ethno nationalism that is this idea that every you know every ethnic group should have its you know kind of own you know self-governance as it were so ripping apart so what happened in yugoslavia for 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 instance back in the 90s um so this nationalism it takes a variety of forms it exists under a, a, you know a, a lot of different political systems it has a soft form which is the assimilation that we talked about before but it's the idea that every nation should have every people should have just one culture and and so that idea of cultural singularity sometimes it's framed up in terms of a desire for unity but what passes for unity is really the babel-like impulse toward uniformity and as if we're all the same then we'll all get along right if we're, we're all culturally on the same page then there won't be divisions uh, among us and what's torn us apart is all this multiculturalism this that has given rise to identity politics and you know all this comp endless competition for power uh and you know the the the, the this this contest over over who controls resources and th these these kinds of things um so that's you know nationalism is this idea one country one one culture and you know as i've sort of unfolded the kind of arc of scripture i hope it's become clear that that the the element of truth in nationalism is that we do need a, a common culture something that will hold us together what's false about it and idolatrous about it is to say that 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 can only happen if we get rid of cultural multiplicity and it's not possible to to be a people of peoples so i think christian you know i think nationalism you know the idea of christian nationalism is an oxymoron nationalism is deeply unchristian because it's it's contrary to the narrative arc of scripture so that's one one thing that i think you know is what i would say would be a, a takeaway from our uh, from from the work that i've done on this 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 topic one other thing that comes to mind uh culture is you know sometimes particularly those who are drawn to nationalism they think about culture as the static thing but i think if we reflect a little bit we can see how culture is always changing you can't have culture without it it being contested i don't know that the language of culture wars is all that helpful but but we're always going to be contesting what our common what holds us to, what our common culture is sometimes we sense that uh you know the the, the culture war is at stake when we meet cultural difference and so it it 
it's going to be contested. And in one sense, it's always contested with varying levels of intensity at different times, but it's always being contested. It's always, it's always changing. Uh, and so I think that's, that's the reality, but it, it does mean that if we only give salience to cultural multiplicity and never think about our, you know, what we hold in common, why do we have culture wars? Is because we're trying to collectively, you know, we're struggling together, in one sense, perpetually struggling together to define what is going to hold us together as a whole. Hmm. And so it's not, it's to say, you know, we're contesting things, but that's what cultures are. That's what cultures do. So it's not to say that Christians don't have anything to say about these these points of you know contestation we we do and we should be speaking about these uh about these things it's only to say that um we in, in times where there is you know great great division between peoples christians must be speaking about the need not only to you know to to value cultural distinctives but also the importance of what holds us together and in times where it's that, you know, where the 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 rhetoric of oneness, and this is not just true in America. You know, you have the the one America rhetoric and the one China rhetoric and the one, you know, many other, you know, the greater Russia. That's you know that's so informed what you know Putin's agenda has been in Ukraine. These are all ways of uh, of asserting uh, the nomination of one cultural group, typically. Uh, but also asserting the the undesirability of cultural multiplicity. And whenever we hear those voices, we have to say, ah, yes, we do have a common culture. We should be cultivating that. We should be encouraging that. But that's not, that should never come at the expense of cultural multiplicity. We will never achieve that, you know, the ultimate form of the divine of the divine purpose to form a people of peoples. We won't achieve that, you know, this side of uh, of the resurrection. Um, we simply won't. But what Jesus' death and resurrection teaches us is to is we live in hope, and one of the things that we hope for is the reconciliation of all things. That kind of comprehensive language, really important in Colossians and Ephesians, for instance. Um, the reconciliation of all things in the resurrected Messiah. Um, it is in him that's, you know, that, that incorporative language. This is so, that's so important in Paul and takes the metaphor of the in the temple language in John. Um, really, really important ways of thinking about how cultural multiplicity can be encouraged. It can, it can be enriched. It can flourish in the context of cultural commonality. So, you know, just to, you know, to move outside of our own cultural context for, for a minute, um, in Ethiopia, for instance, you know, as an outsider, I, you know, when I got there, I just saw Ethiopians. Uh, and then I, under, I, I could see after several years that there's all this cultural diversity that, you know, inside of Ethiopia, this ethnic diversity, so to take one, you know, just random example, let's let's take, you know, someone who is a Romo, like the largest uh, ethnic group in, in Ethiopia. Are they a Romo or are they Ethiopian? 
And the answer is they're both. <laughs> they're, they're both. They, they have to be. Uh, and, and you shouldn't, uh, I don't think a good, you know, uh, to live in hope is not to deny one or the uh, over the other. It's not to say, forget your ethnic identity and only be an Ethiopian. Or forget your Ethiopian doesn't only be an Oromo. Um, one, you know, sacrifices unity at the cost of diversity, and the other sacrifices diversity at the cost of the unity. And we're always kind of, you know, swinging from one extreme to the other. And so as Christians, to live in hope means that we we are adopting practices in our personal relationships and uh, our expressions of hospitality. We We want to cultivate... Uh, we live in hope when we see that that vision of a people of peoples that the book of Revelation talks about, and we shape our lives in keeping with that in keeping with that vision. I think there's some, you know, eminently practical ways for us to uh, for us to do that. You know, build relationships with people who are culturally different than you are. Get involved in you know the mission the mission of god to you know to 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 the un, uh, to unreached peoples around the around the world um you know practice you know the simple hospitality with neighbors who come from cultural backgrounds that are different from uh different from your from your own when you hear whether in your family or in your friendship groups uh people veering toward one, you know, the the one cultural kind of nationalist extreme, or the multicultural kind of diversity extreme, to to be a a, a voice that that bring, that restores that that balance, that restores that uh, that notion that 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 God is deeply interested, that God's purposes are directing us toward an end in which both are are are, are valued. I think each one of us are, are are capable of uh, of thinking ourselves of ourselves as having multiple identities. We have that, you know. Most of us have that experience, you know. For you know, people that, that grew up in you know backgrounds like you, you know, you and I have. I can I can think of myself as a, as both an Oklahoman and an American. You know, depending on what context I'm in. Uh, uh, you know, just as many people that live in our country can think of themselves as having a, a racial identity as well as a national identity or an ethnic identity as well as a national identity. And sometimes many, many, you know, a number of other things. Think of people whose whose parents come from two two races and how they have to negotiate cultural multiplicity right inside their own families and right inside their own persons. Um, that's not an that's not an oddity. In the one sense, that's the way it's meant. You know, God intended His, you know, the the world to function. So to to embrace that and the beauty of that, uh, I think you know is is enriching to uh, enriching to all of us. And and once you begin to get a sense of that, if you live in a kind of cultural monolithic place, you know, as in many rural parts of the U.S., to to you know to you you may have to be a little bit more creative. Uh, but I think there's still it's still possible. It's still necessary for us to do this work of uh, of reflecting both the oneness uh, that that uh, uh, that God desires and 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 the manyness that God also uh, desires within that one. So I think that's what it means to live in hope. It is possible for us as Christians to uh, to do that. But it is but but it is hard work.
All right. Good words. Well, I'm Dennis Metzler. You've been listening to The Charge. We've been talking about how biblical theology relates to ethnicity, race, and nationality with Dr. Steve Bryan, professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and the author of Cultural Identity and the Purposes of God, a Biblical Theology of Ethnicity, Nationality, and Race. It is available below. Follow the link. Dr. Brian, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Appreciate the invitation. All right. Peace to everyone.